Hey, dear listener, before we get into this episode, I want to invite you to a very exciting training I have coming up. If you are a therapist in need of CEUs and seeking to level up your trauma processing game, my friend and co-conspirator, Dr. Kay Hickson, and I are teaching the very first iteration of our class, Mentalization-Based Narrative Exposure Therapy for Complex Interpersonal Trauma. It's a four-day training coming up on April 8th, 9th, 18th, and 19th of 2024. This is a thorough training where you will be provided with a comprehensive framework for processing your client's complex interpersonal trauma through narrative, and you will leave being able to apply these techniques to your cases right away. It's also going to be really fun. Dr. Hickson and I are a good time, even or especially when we're talking about trauma. I would love to see some of you there. You can find the registration information at thekilnschool.com under the Continuing Education tab. And now please enjoy this episode. I think of my first client frequently. I wish I could go back to her and be like, dude, I'm sorry. Like that wasn't, that was not helpful. That was not good. You know, like, whoo, because I was so worried about being a good therapist. I was not in the room. I was not present. I was just constantly trying to be like, what should I say now? Is this going to be helpful? You know, like I was so analyzing everything I was doing to see, is this good? Am I okay? Versus sitting and listening to her. If you're a therapist, even if you're far from your practicum days, you can probably relate to the feeling of sitting in a session and being distracted by the thought of whether you're living up to the standard of a good therapist. And you've probably had a moment where you're sitting with a client or a group of colleagues and you hear something come out of your mouth and immediately think, Yeesh, that doesn't sound like something a good therapist would say. But just who is that good therapist anyway? I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. On this episode, I'm talking with Nancy Jane Smith, a licensed professional counselor and the creator of Self-Loyalty School. She's a therapist out in Ohio, half a country away from me here in Portland, and she specializes in high-functioning anxiety. I met Nancy a couple of years ago, and we connected immediately over all the weird and frustrating and fascinating things about this work we do of being therapists. And one of the things that came up very quickly in our conversations was the sense that we are often comparing ourselves to this faceless, nameless archetype of a good therapist, that we were measuring ourselves against these ideas we have of what that archetypal good therapist would do, who they would be, what they would say, how they would show up with clients, etc. I'm comfortable saying that this is, if not a universal experience, at least a near universal experience among therapists, that we carry this fuzzy idea in our heads of what a good therapist is, how we are or aren't measuring up to it, that we can feel really uncomfortable sometimes when we can sense we are going outside of that box, even when we aren't doing anything identifiably wrong and maybe when we are even doing something identifiably right. I really wanted to unpack that here. When we're looking at the things that it feels like a therapist can't say, just where did we get the idea that we can't say those things in the first place? Who is this mythical good therapist? What are their qualities? And where do those ideas come from? I think you're going to enjoy my conversation with Nancy, where we dive into who the good therapist is for us. And I'm so curious to know what you're going to think about what we come up with. When you think about that archetypal good therapist that you compare yourself to, is that therapist a blank slate? 
Does a good therapist take all the most challenging cases? Do they self-disclose? Do they diagnose and write treatment plans? Are they a quiet introvert? Do they have all their shit together in their personal life? Nancy and I look at some of these questions. And in my next episode, I'm going to look at what emerged from this conversation a little more deeply and explore how these expectations we carry of what a good therapist is and does are currently impacting us and our work as we deal with the challenges of working through the pandemic and the other collective struggles that have been on our plates for the past two plus years. So go ahead and listen to my conversation with Nancy and then come back for my next episode so we can really go deep together and look at some of the things that are burdening us as therapists right now. I think that's going to feel really good to hear some of that spoken out loud. Nancy, it's so great to be talking to you again after a couple of years. Yes, a lot has happened. Yes, it has in the world, in life, in being a therapist. I <laughs> yes. feel like these past couple of years have been a doozy. So one of the things that uh, we talked about the last time we spoke when I was on your podcast um, that we alluded to a couple of times was this idea of the way we're always comparing ourselves to this image we have of what a good therapist is. And that that's always lurking in the background a little bit um, as we're practicing, as we're engaging with our clients and all that. And I'm just curious to open that conversation about like your experience of that, you know, throughout your your career as a therapist, how that's come up for you, where you notice it um, showing up and just what you think that's about. Well, it shows up a lot um, for me. And I think one of the main places it shows up is... I can remember years ago, I went to um, certified in the Daring Way. Um, and I so I went to the Daring Way certification thingamajiggy. Mm -hmm. And it was with all these, quote unquote, legitimate therapists. <laughs> and then me. And these legitimate therapists were there, in my mind, they were legitimate because they work with trauma and hardcore stuff. And I didn't, I don't, I work with anxiety and I work with, um, it's a little, not the worried well, but a little, you know, not trauma. It's interesting because since we talked, I'm going to stop myself. Since we've talked, I've had some ahas around this to add more to this conversation, which is good. So I remember sitting there and talking to the people and saying to the therapists who were legitimate and saying, I'm not legitimate. Like this is because we're talking about shame. So this is one of my shame things. And they were like, oh my God, no, you know, we need therapists that do all kinds of things. It was an aha to me to realize they didn't want to do what I did. They wanted to work with more intense people than I did. And, um, and so that didn't help though, at the time, like I was still like, no, no, you're legit. I'm not legit. And so that pattern, even with my own therapist, I won't talk about till recently, I would not talk about my practice because I was afraid she was going to be like, well, you're not, that's not okay. That's not legit. That's not. And I think some of it is my style is so much more, <laughs> I'm, other than you, I'm pretty much more gregarious than any person, you know, like I'm kind of out <laughs> yes. there with, with my laugh and my, you know, I'm, I'm not, tell me more. And I'm not that quiet listening. I'd listen, like, I'm, it's not like I'm like talking all the time. And in my mind, there was always the, the therapist that, that didn't talk and was super reflective, or there was the therapist that was super directive. And 
I'm not super directive either. Like I really believe everyone needs to come to it in their own time. And, and um, the, where I differ from a lot of traditional therapy rules in my mind is that I share a lot of my own stuff. So where it's appropriate, I'm not like, but I do share my own stories because I think it helps people feel less alone. Like, oh, I'm not the only, you know, we tend to feel like we're the only ones. And I think anytime you can share like, oh yeah, I went through that. I know what you're talking about. It relaxes the client to be like, oh, okay, it's not just me and you're not perfect either. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I think healing can start from that place because if they have this version of that, I'm the one that has all my, can I curse on this? Uh, yes, please go for okay, it. Okay, that I have all my shit together is so wrong because right. the reason I, you know, we all know the reason we got into therapy is because we don't have our shit together. Like, <laughs> we probably at least started out having our shit together way less than yes, the average yes. in my opinion. <laughs> because that's why we needed to actually immerse our lives in this, in this kind of thing. Um, totally. I love so much of what you just said. So I think there's so many important pieces. So I think the one, um, the, the, you know, the first thing that you touched on this idea that like being a real, like the archetypal therapist, the real legit therapist is the severity of the problems um, that your clients have, right? Um, and I remember, um, you know, one of my my teachers, uh, David Schnarch, who I mentioned, I know when I was on your show, and I'll probably talk about like, every episode of this podcast. But, um, <laughs> but I remember him talking about that uh, at one of the last trainings I went to with him where he was like, by the way, guys, don't just go out there and try to take on, you know, the most challenging cases that you can find and fill your caseload with that, you know, because it's sort of this badge of pride within this therapist community that we have of like, oh, I can really treat the, uh, you know, the difficult um, cases, because you're going to have a really shitty time. Um, <laughs> and you're going to, you know, probably not be as effective of a therapist, because that is going to take so much from you, you know, all of that. And it was it was very interesting to me that he um, identified that as like a hallmark in the therapist community of like that we see that as being some kind of badge of honor like oh if i can i can take the hard the hard cases you know right yeah um and i think it it almost even connects to what what you're talking about the self-disclosure piece because i you know sometimes when i think there's this emphasis on like oh i i deal with the most difficult clients i deal with the most difficult cases that's another way of like it creates an us and them like oh i'm the therapist yes i'm the one who knows all the wisdom and you know they are the suffering person who's coming to me for help and there's this huge gap when we know it's so much more complicated than that and so not not at all in us and them we're just people muddling through you know right like anyone else is yes yeah yeah i used to think i had to because one of the ahas I've had since the last time we talked was recognizing that a lot of times with the really hard clients, you're just listening. You're not really, because that's what they need. I'm not saying, I shouldn't say just listening, but the main thing you're doing is listening and reflecting and, and moving them along bit by bit by bit. If you can move them along, it may just be that you're helping them by listening. Right. Yeah. And that, when I had that aha of, oh, it's not that I'm a bad therapist, it's just the type of therapy I want to do is not that. 
Right. I'm curious about, you know, I know when we last spoke, we talked about that, that blank slate idea, right? And you had said that, like, I like for you, that felt very prevalent in terms of when you were in school or your cohort of therapists and people you've known. And I'm curious about, like, do you still still feel like that's that's seen um, as at least in the communities and, and circles that you are connected to um, with therapists? Do you is that seen as like ideal that you should be, you know, like bringing as little of yourself into the therapeutic relationship as possible? Like, what do you see around that idea? Um, as far as the therapist that I, I still see that, like, that's still a prevalent thing. It's softening a little bit, you know, cause mm -hmm. it used to be never share your stories. Right. Like that was a, and now it's a little more where appropriate is the, is added. Mm -hmm. And the part that drives me crazy is they never say what is where appropriate mean, <laughs> right. you know, like, yes. what does that mean? How do right. I know what's appropriate? Right. And I think that comes with experience that yeah. you can tell from the client, oh, this isn't landing, you know, mm -hmm. like I've invaded their story and I need to take right. a step back. Totally. But I also think you can, if the spirit of, I do think, yeah, it's still there. Somewhat. Do you think it's still there or you think it's changing? Um, I do think it's still there. I and I think it's changing. You know, I live in Portland. It's very progressive. Um, I think um, especially since, you know, the 2016 election, there's been a big shift towards being more uh open about like political views, mm -hmm. just yeah. because that's become much more important. Um, to clients, I think, you know, like previously it may have been important, like, but I think there may have been more assumptions made about, oh, oh we probably share enough of our values or whatever. Whereas now, you know, and it's just the everything, you know, with the pandemic and all that stuff, there's been a lot more, I think, of people kind of wanting to check in, like, do we have, you know, basically the same values? And I think that's maybe at least uh, here become more normalized, you know, of, you know, you'll see a lot of therapist websites from Portland, people talking about being anti-racist or being, you know, queer, positive, trans positive and all of that stuff, which um, is great. And I think it's not, um, it's not a super risky self-disclosure at this point because it has become a little you know in this community more normalized so if right if i'm saying yeah. like oh i'm an anti-racist therapist whatever that means to me i'm not gonna ha get a bunch of looks at me askance from other therapists probably right uh, yes. you know yeah. um so yeah. it's not super risky i do think it's still um you know the extent to which we're sharing our personal stories so i think that almost all therapists do that more than they admit. So ah, that's my yes. sense. And when I would I, agree. Yeah, yeah. And when I talk to people who I know who do supervision and stuff, that's one of the things that I hear that there's a lot of things that like, right, people are doing in therapy room that we aren't talking about that much. And I think that self-disclosure is one of those things. Um, because whenever I see, have you ever seen those like Buzzfeed lists or things that are like, um, you know, 30 people sharing their, you know, terrible therapist experiences oh, and things uh -huh. like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, or like TikToks or, you know, like things like that where people are like, uh, oh, mm -hmm. I had a therapist who did this or I had a therapist who did that. Um, and often one of the things that comes up is, um, is, is like excessive self-disclosure. And I've seen mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, the responses to those from therapists is this like, oh, I would never you know, like I, right. a, a good therapist would never, you know, knows that they're supposed to not, you know, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, share all this stuff about themselves. And it's just, 
it's interesting to see people needing to, uh, I think, grandstand a little bit that way, you know, online of like, oh, well, I, I'm going to separate myself, me, the good therapist from those bad therapists who would do that excessive self-disclosure thing. Right. You know, the fact yeah. that people feel the mm -hmm. need to make that comment, yes. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I also think it's interesting because um, it is a gray area and the potential of taking that risk of sharing a personal story could the potential for a positive outcome can be very high. And I know for me, so um, like when I was pregnant and I was um, announcing my maternity leave to my clients and I had a client at that time who had had a recent uh, miscarriage. So I knew it was going to go in and be fraught. Right. And so I went in and, you know, I, I, let the client know, you know, the the logistics and the basic stuff around it. Um, and then, you know, it really impacted them. It was really hard for them to hear that news. And so I chose in that moment to share, you know, I had had a previous miscarriage. It, it took me and my partner a long time then to get pregnant again. And this was, you know, like a long awaited, you know, pregnancy and, and baby. It made a huge difference for that client yes. and my relationship mm -hmm. with that client. And I think a lot of people would think, you shouldn't share that. It's very, you know, that's way too personal. Like, oh, a miscarriage. It's like we barely even talk about that oh, with right. friends, right? You know, right. let alone yes. tell a client. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it made, a, it made a huge difference. And now, you know, with that kind of content, especially the things that we don't talk about as much in society, right? I think that can, hearing your therapist say like, yes, I've had this experience too. And it hasn't been an easy road for me either can be so humanizing and validating versus yes. just being like, oh, yes, I understand that it's hard for you to hear, you know? Yes, right. Yeah. I feel really passionately about this. <laughs> but for my particular clients who are, I mean, I treat people who have high functioning anxiety. So they're super performative, you know, push, 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 ignore what's happening, just keep going. And they've done a lot of work to try to help themselves, like mm -hmm. whether that be therapy or self-help or whatever. Right. And what they run up against is all these people saying, and it's mostly like coaches or, you know, but even therapists, I can heal your anxiety. I can, we can yeah. fix this. And they try the thing and it doesn't work because you can't freaking fix anxiety. You like can't you can't get rid of it. You can't yeah. get it. No, it drives. It's one of the things that drives me crazy. And I would argue that I don't think as many therapists are saying that as coaches, but it's a, it's a common theme in Absolutely. society. And so when I come on and I mean, my website is all me. Mm -hmm. Like I talk about, I did this, I did this. This is why I think this is so important. This is a story. I mean, I announced this self-loyalty school. I told a whole story about the first time I hired, when I hired a matchmaker and how terrible mm -hmm. it was. Like super raw, you know, like super vulnerable. Now it wasn't directly to a client, but they know that story now right. when they, yeah. you know, for me and my particular clients, that's why I say that caveat there. It is really helpful for them to hear I'm not alone and and Nancy's doing okay and she hasn't healed her anxiety. Yes, I love that. I think um, that what you just identified, the performativity piece and how self-disclosure can impact that, that's actually something that I don't think I've heard anyone really talk about before. And I think that's it's very essential because when we're talking about somebody who feels like they have to do a ton of um, image management, right? I'm, yes. It's like, you know, I mean, we all know how that shows up in the therapy room. Like, that clients are 
especially people who are very motivated towards image management, they're doing image management with us. Um, And how to um, get around that or break down that wall between because of course, that, you know, it creates so much misrepresentation of how well people are doing or what their real struggles are, you know, when they're trying to manage that image and, and, um, you know, perform this high functioning uh, facade, you know, with us. Yes, one of the things that actually can have a huge impact in helping break that down is self disclosure. I'm thinking about, you know, um, you're talking about the high functioning anxiety um, realm, which I think, yes, so much investment for folks with that in terms of like looking like they're having it all together and whatever. And then I think, you know, um, another thing, couples. So I think couples often really misrepresent the um, like real extent of how hard things are between them or how mean they're being to each other or, you know, whatever the thing is, how bad the fights are getting, you know, Um, another thing, um, parents are really, really invested in being seen as good parents. There's so much shame around some of the feelings that come up in parenting. I think in those instances, like the, if I share a story about, you know, uh, like some stupid passive aggressive thing I did with my husband, you know, or if I share that, like, yes, yes, when, you know, when my baby was little and she was waking up for the fifth time screaming, you know, yes, I felt angry, even Mm -hmm. though like it's taboo to feel angry at a baby, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that makes such a difference in just diffusing that sense of like, oh, this is someone I need to, um, you know, present myself to. Yes. It's so valuable. Like, cause my, my therapist who I've seen for a decade, Mm -hmm. probably, you know, off and on, she will always say, is it okay if I share a story here? Mm -hmm. And, um, and she's in her sixties, you know, I mean, she's old school and Mm -hmm. I'm finally, I was like, you don't have to (laughs) just share it. Just share the story. Like from here on out, share the story. Right. Because that would jar it to mm-hmm. be like, oh, yeah, you are supposed to be. And I that's because it's me and I know the training. Right. But I'm like, I want to have a relationship with you, not just have you be a blank slate to me. Right. Yeah. Because that's how I'm going to grow. And I don't want her sharing all the times that of she's course, feeling anxiety. Right. You know, but yeah. it's that idea of, oh, yeah, I can relate. And I do have to, I mean, it's something that I monitor a lot. Because uh, I can relate to my clients a lot. And to be like, oh, this is their story. I'm not going to butt in with, oh, yeah, I did that too one time. you know. Right, yeah. But if they're stuck on something and feeling shame, I think that anecdote of I've been there too. Right, is, right. Is where it's appropriate. Totally. And I think, you know, I've really seen how valued clients can feel when also they have a sense that you're entrusting something about yourself with them. And -hmm. that can really um, just have a positive impact on the relationship as a whole. You know, and I think that the piece about monitoring it is, is interesting to think about because yes, absolutely. It's something, you know, like, you want to be paying attention to this, like, do I just want to tell this story to somebody, you know, and and like, it's not really, yes. you know, like, I like, I can go, you know, discharge that later. Or is this a, a clinical intervention? Yes, of course, we have to be thinking about that. But I think what's interesting, you know, and to bring it back to this cookie cutter, good therapist, I think that like, part of the problem when we have that image is that when we're staying within the cookie cutter, we don't question whether what we're doing is the right thing as much, you know, and when we're going outside it, that's when we say, okay, I need to monitor, I need to pay attention, should I really be going outside this, this outline? Whereas I think, you know, to use the self disclosure piece as an example, um, 
I don't hear people saying to somebody who's considering using self-disclosure and then doesn't, they're not saying, are you avoiding that out of anxiety? Are you avoiding that out of a desire to camouflage yourself from the client because you feel a fear of intimacy? Are you um, too worried about following the rules um, and that's impacting your clinical work? Because they're they're doing what you're supposed to, you know, quote unquote, be doing, which is not self-disclosing, you know? And right. so, yes. so it's interesting to think about like, how do we balance that when it's something that isn't in keeping with that archetype we're, we're questioning and we're, you know, analyzing our own clinical judgment as we should be. But when we're staying in the bounds of that image, are we doing the same thing? Because we should, right. we yeah. should be looking at our clinical judgment all the time, not just when we're going outside of the, uh, you know, the quote right. shoulds. Yeah. Yes. No, I think that's very well said because I do, you know, and as you were talking, I'm like, oh, how would you prevent that? You know, like you would need a good supervisor who's going to challenge that, which is we don't always have time for that. I think you need a good supervisor who's going to challenge that. But I also think you just need time. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think of my first client, God, I think of her frequently. Um, I wish I could go back to her and be like, dude, I'm sorry. Like that wasn't that was not helpful. That was not good. You know, like, whoo, because I was so worried about being a good therapist. I was not in the room. I was not present. I was just constantly trying to, to be like, what should I say now? Is this going to be helpful? You know, like I was so analyzing everything I was doing to see, is this good? Am I okay? Versus sitting and listening to her. And and I know that I do that now, too, but I catch myself so much faster, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like in the past few years, I have really done a lot of my own personal work and opened up a lot of, like, realized a lot of stuff about my childhood and traumas, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, which has made me such a better therapist and such a better coach with my clients because I'm, I can be more authentic because all that crap isn't coming up. Right that was coming up of like, I'm trying to heal my old wounds by being the good therapist and being the good girl. Yes. Oh my God. Totally. I love that you brought that up. I think that's such a huge, huge factor um, in this um, across the field. So like, I mean, if you think about um, the, the, the person who becomes a therapist, it's almost always right. The role that we took in our families was, Mm -hmm. you know, probably parentified to some degree, whether that's Mm -hmm. in relationship to parents or siblings or whoever, you know, the, the child who really is trying to take care of everyone and manage and make sure everybody's okay. You know, I, I think that is like, it's unusual to meet a therapist who that wasn't their role in their family, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Um, I agree. And that's something I think we really, we are really not looking at as, as like a professional culture. I think people are certainly looking at that in their individual therapy Mm -hmm. some of the time, and perhaps in supervision, if they have a great supervisor, I don't think we're talking about in a realistic way about who ends up in this work and why, and then Mm -hmm. how that shows up with our clients. And I think that, that thing of like, I need to make sure the client's okay. Um, I need to do a good job. The client's level of okayness is a reflection on 
you know, my value mm -hmm. and I don't want to get in trouble, you know, <laughs> um, and, and all of that, you know, so I'm going to, uh, just make sure that, you know, like I identify what that good therapist is and I'm going to be mm -hmm. that and then everything will be okay. I mean, that is not where good clinical work takes place no. you know <laughs> no but i used to live for years was like any day now the counselor board is going to come knock on my door <laughs> and be like you're done you're going to court like this right. is terrible you know like you have been found out you have been yes. found out yeah someone has yeah. reported you and you're terrible and and now i'm like really like i can tell myself really the chances of that are slim and mm -hmm. you're fine but that drove me for years yes of i don't want to be found out i don't want to you know i don't want the board to know that i'm terrible Yes. Yeah. I think that that the fear of getting in trouble and the whole idea of the board is such a big, uh, a big, scary, like looming thing in everyone's yes. lives. And the like all I don't take insurance, but I see in folks who do take insurance, like the fear of like, well, and this is a very real one that the yes. insurance companies are going to come and take their money back um, yeah. for some bullshit reason. So it really reinforces that like rule following got to have to do everything perfect and blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious if for you, the the idea of like the good therapist is is a good therapist one who gives a diagnosis is that how you were yes yeah okay yeah so I'm curious to hear yeah just your what you've experienced with that so I am a licensed practicing counselor I'm not a licensed independent practicing counselor which is how it works in Ohio so I see. so for my therapy clients I need to see a supervisor because mm -hmm. I cannot independently diagnose I see okay even though I don't really diagnose clients because I don't do insurance either. So right. it's kind of a moot point, which is mm -hmm. why I never jump through the hoops to get it. But now, and now I don't know that, I mean, I could jump through the hoops, but I should have done it right after grad school when I remembered all the freaking diagnoses. <laughs> now I don't. But that is always something that's kind of held me back in my mind that I'm not legitimate mm. because I don't have the qualifications to diagnose it's kind of like in college when I really wanted to get into a sorority when I didn't really want to get into a sorority, but I just thought I should want to get into a sorority. It's the same thing. Like, <laughs> right. I don't want to diagnose anyone, but I think I should be able to diagnose them. And that makes me less legit because I didn't jump through that hoop. You know, one of my mentors, she's put the same freaking diagnosis for everyone. Right. You know, she just did adjustment disorder with mixed mood. And sure, sure. Right. Fits everyone. She also wasn't building insurance, but... I don't have the issue so much, which I know people do with putting people in a box and your labeling and mm -hmm. because I just see it to me, a diagnosis is a means to an end to get covered by insurance. Totally. Yeah. It's not necessarily, oh, you were diagnosed with bipolar. So now this, that means this necessarily. Of course, I have a stereotype around that because we all do. But if someone comes in, you know, comes into my office or they did in the past and said they had bipolar, I would still treat them. I would pretend they didn't have the diagnosis and go from fresh. Right. You wouldn't be just like filling in a bunch of like presumed information based on the fact that they had yes. this previous diagnosis. Right. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because I think there's become a very... Uh, it's become very polarized, um, the whole issue of diagnosis, right? Like in the therapy community, like I think it's one of those things where like the traditional medical model is, yes, you, you know, you diagnose, you give everyone a diagnosis and it's helpful because it's then you can do your treatment plan and it determines the course of treatment and, you, you know, that sort of very linear medical approach, um, which I disagree with. Um, you know, fundamentally, if I believed our 
research and everything was so great that we'd actually, you know, and the DSM really represented right. people's experiences accurately, then that would be great. I don't think it does. Um, no. And but then there's this other opposite pole where it's just like never diagnosis, you know, it's all just like, a, you know, oppressive system, you know, that is going to, you know, don't ever use it and whatever. And I think that's, to be honest, more where I started out. And now um, I don't routinely give a diagnosis. I actually like that. I'm part of a Facebook group of people who went through um, a practice building workshop together. And somebody had brought up the idea of um, doing diagnosis, not doing diagnosis in their practice. And I had actually forgotten that like a lot of people practice and give everyone they see right. diagnosis. I was like, oh, <laughs> strange. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I was saying is that like, yeah, occasionally still, you know, there are a few things that I, you know, diagnoses that I do bring up if I think that they're really relevant and the person fits them really well because that's really going to impact them. For one, if I think somebody has OCD, I'm going to bring up OCD. Yes, because like, yes. If you really do fit that OCD profile and you try to do other kinds of you know ther therapy it's gonna be a mess potentially you know yeah. so um so that's one and then um you know if i do think somebody has like true you know very marked bipolar disorder i would yeah. mention it to them you know if they're mm -hmm. truly having a real mania you know with many diagnoses i'm like giving so many caveats about the validity of the research in the dsm constructs and all of that yeah because i think those diagnoses can benefit from the medical model right ocd bipolar like there is medical medical research to support those but the other even anxiety which is where i land is um and you know, I have anxiety, but when I, uh, the reason I took me so long to, to recognize it is because I look at the DSM, I don't have the DSM anxiety. Right. It's been just sliced into those different pie slices and they, it doesn't look like yes. that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Or even, I mean, when I was working in crisis, I saw so many people who were experiencing even psychosis and it didn't fit well into one of those categories. So it's like, right. you yeah. just are like, we are not caught up. We yeah. are not even yeah. close to how people's brains and minds actually no. work with this thing. No. You know, as we're talking like this idea of like what a good therapist is, you know, it's interesting to think about like the different connotations that has depending on like which, you know, sort of therapist subculture you're a part of, you mm, know, that like, mm -hmm. you know, in some of those, it may be like, oh, you don't give a diagnosis. Well, you're just, um, you know, you're abdicating your responsibility and you should be, you know, oh my God, you didn't write a treatment plan, you know, which like, to me, I'm like, you, you're never going to follow it. Like if, unless you're doing no. like a full fidelity DBT or something, you know, like you have, you, like you're always going to be changing things as you go along to suit yeah. what your client needs. So like to me, yeah, not having a treatment plan is not, uh, is not the same as not having a plan. But so there's going to be those people who are like, you're, you know, you're not practicing right. And that's, that's wrong. And then you're going to have maybe in another therapist subculture, this idea of like, well, if you give a diagnosis, you're just labeling somebody and you're, you know, um, putting the stigma on them that they're never going to get rid of. And that's, you know, like, you're not um, radical enough, or you're not up to speed on, you know, what being a progressive therapist is really about, you know, like all of those things that, that um, depending on where you're situated, it's going to be, the pressure is going to go in one direction or another. Yeah. Cause I would say that just real quick, that falls in the good therapist. Like both of those trigger me mm -hmm. as far as mm -hmm. being a good therapist, like the mm -hmm. idea that I should be more DSM. I should be, that's a legit mm -hmm. and, 
And then I like, oh, but I should be more progressive right. and more, you know, like, so I can pull given any given day, one of those down <laughs> totally. as a good therapy model, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I think it's so shaped by social media at this point. I think a lot of these ideas of what a good therapist is and does have been made much more public than they were, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago when it was more confined yeah. to just the, you know, inner dialogues of the profession. And now it's like out there is like, oh, this is what you should be looking for from a therapist. Or if your therapist does this, you know, they're right. They're yeah, wrong yeah, yeah. and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, get back to that, that you mentioned very early on in our conversation that I, uh, I relate to so much. And I, I would love to hear you say more about is that idea of like, it sounds like being an extroverted therapist or like a gregarious, you know, somebody who talks a lot and is, expressive and that really not being part of that image um, of the good therapist who's doing what they should. So I'm curious about your experience of that. When you were t asking me the question, I was trying to figure out like, where did I get that? You know, where did that message yeah. come in? Yeah. And no one ever has said that to me, like in you're too much. Yeah. I mean, other than growing up, I heard it all the freaking time as we tend <laughs> right. to. Yeah. Um, other than that, but the, but just in looking around and yes. seeing the people that are drawn to therapy, they are, and I am an introvert, but I'm gregarious. Right. I mean, like when I'm working, I'm blah, you mm -hmm. know, and then I need lots of time to regroup. But mm -hmm. the idea that, um, Every like I can remember all the daring way people they were really quiet and yeah. really you know and I'm in like ah let's get what's my name Nancy who are you you know like totally was super excited and so it felt like that to me that was triggering to be like oh you're gonna and then my then my stance on disclosure was on self-disclosure is again more expressive more yeah. expressive mm -hmm. and i'm again i'm too much and i'm sharing too much and right. i'm upsetting the therapy balance and i'm not you know that was such a therapy question you asked when you just said now tell me more about what you, <laughs> <laughs> what you think about that my um, husband will now tell me say more about that and i'm like mm. <laughs> You've stolen my line and now you're using it on me. Because <laughs> my husband will say, oh, crap, you've been working all day with clients, haven't you? Because I'll be, the questions I ask him will be super pointed, uh -huh. you know, like, and he's like, oh, you were working with a lot of clients. <laughs> but I think that for me still is, still to this day is, is a thing like mm -hmm. that I'm too much. Mm hmm to be a therapist. And when people meet me, they're usually surprised that I'm a therapist. Mm, that's so interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. The piece about like everyone around is that is not that personality type. So it was so funny. So there was, I, I believe it was our like assessments class that we had to take as part of our master's program to look at assessment tools. And the uh, professor had us all do like a Myers-Briggs. And it <laughs> then we all wrote our Myers-Briggs on the, on the board. Mm. Um, so there's like 16 people in my cohort. So INFJ, 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 INFJ. And then there was me, ENFP. And then I think one other person, I think there was one S, you know, so it was like, you know, right, it, right. Was, it was like a total anomaly. Um, and 
it was <laughs> it was so funny. I was just and and my cohort and I were very close, and so it was not. I didn't feel like alienated from them, you know, right. in particular. But it was so funny because I was just like, yeah, this is this is part of the thing. I actually think it's interesting and kind of strange that so many very highly introverted and quiet people are therapists because you have to talk to people all the time and see yes. people all day. Um, yeah. So I'm like, that sounds, and I, you know, extroverts need, you know, downtime and, totally. and all that too. And I do too need alone time after, you know, I've been, you know, with clients all day often. Um, and so I'm just like, how do you even, I'm like, that's a, that's what seems like a hard job for a highly yes. introverted person. And yet, INFJ just down the line. The bigger thing than the is the opinionated. Yes. I have yes. a lot of opinions. Yes. Yeah. So for me to come in and be like, I think self-disclosure is really helpful. Right. People are like, I don't know what to do with you because the rules are right. no self-disclosure. And right. so then I tried to clamp myself down yeah. and, you know, it never, it didn't work. I couldn't do it. Right. The idea of like being opinionated and then uh, I think it really comes, it rubs up against the conflict avoidance, the making sure everything's okay. Yes. You know, yes. Um, yeah. and so like the way therapists are with each other as colleagues goes from totally accommodating and conflict avoidant to vicious so fast yes. when there is a conflict. And so I think people to some degree have... A legitimate fear that that's where it's going to go and also mm -hmm. are just really un unfortunately lacking in the skills of disagreement, you know, appropriate right. disagreement, yeah. Um, yeah. which is unfortunate because we're supposed to be teaching that to people. But but yeah, so, uh, you know, I think I did actually get a lot of messages in grad school from professors, not personally, but there was a lot of like, oh, make sure you're not talking too much in session. Uh, you know, say less, say less, say less. And it, it's kind of funny because I, you know, I've been to, I've seen many therapists, I've, you know, done consults, you know, as a client with quite a number of therapists. Um, and I've seen my colleagues do therapy and people do sometimes not talk enough, you know, like there are therapists who their issue is that they need to get in there more. They need yes, to say more. I would agree. They yeah. need to be more involved. They need to show more of themselves because that helps create the container for the client, right? But that was not the message in grad school. The message was always, are you bringing too much? Are you saying too much? Yes, I would agree. Too much? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which is, I mean, I, I guess the only thing I can think is that just gets passed down through generations of therapists. And when we're looking at two generations of therapists ago, I mean, that was my grandparents' generation. And I'm sure they were still supposed to be just sitting with the person lying on the couch, barely making eye contact. You right. Know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's like we don't always look at maybe what's coming down through those lineages when that wasn't all that long ago that that was the norm. No. Right. And I do think I because when I mentioned that about my first client that I would go back to her, part of the reason I'd go back to her is because I was too passive. Mm -hmm. You know, she totally. didn't. I didn't push her. I didn't, yes. um, you know, kind of rub up against her a little more. Right. I was just like, okay, I'm going to a good therapist sits back and, and listens. And then the one therapist that I had that, that I knew that didn't do that, she had all these freaking worksheets. So then I was like, <laughs> oh, I need to have a worksheet. So then right. I had all these worksheets. And then I'm like, no, who's completing these worksheets, you know, like, and <laughs> yeah. clients will say, do you have a worksheet? And I'm like, are you gonna do it? Because let's be real. Right. You know, like I'm not. Right. How much are we all getting out of this? Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Yeah, it's now that you mentioned that that idea of like being too passive with your first client, I think almost all of the mistakes that I up to now, including in my practice now that I have made and continue to make with clients are that I held back too much. Not that I did too much. Not that I was overbearing or overinvolved, you know, and I, I'm sure I've had a, a client or two who would beg to differ, you know, with a, an right. intervention I've used or that I've, you know, <laughs> been too overbearing or something at a time or two. But um, the things that I really think about and I think I wish I could go back and do that different, it's things that I didn't do. It's ways that I avoided um, it's ways that I didn't challenge someone when I could have, you know, let them wander too far away from where we should have been, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. And yet what we hear is the opposite of that. Um, at least that's what I was hearing in grad school, you know, like that, like pull back and listen. And I, and I wonder, I just wonder to what extent is that a theoretical difference? To what extent is are we fearing that by showing up and really taking the reins a little bit that we're doing harm? And so, you know, the fear of doing harm is that, you know, we pull back so that we have less of an effect in case that effect might be harmful. Like what, I wonder what that is about. You know, I would agree with you that that happened in grad school. It was, but in my gestalt training, mm -hmm. cause I did a post grad thing in that and, and the instructor, oh. A little narcissism happening, but we won't get into all that. But <laughs> the thing that he could, there's many things that he said that I hold on to. And one of them was when people would be practicing, he would say, stop jumping around the psychological landscape. Mm. Oh, I love that image. Yeah. And that, and I did too, because I could see what they were doing. Yes. They were, you know, and the, they were just letting them go and, and they were asking questions that were way off. You know, we were way over here and the right. theme was this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that training helped me many years later. Like I didn't get it at the time, but now right. I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, we're on this theme. Mm -hmm. You want to take us over here because you don't want to talk about this right. theme. Right, that is avoidance. Yeah. And we're colluding with it. Yes. Yes. All the freaking time. Yes. Because it's easy to be passive and just be like, I don't really want to challenge them. So. Right. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's, right. I'll just let them go, you right. know? And I did that a lot. I have done that a lot. Yes. Um, out of fear of the good therapist. And it isn't until recently, you know, in the past couple years that I hear him saying, you're jumping around the psychological landscape, get back in there. Totally. And the, the therapists that I most respect and who I've learned the most from, I think, take that approach and that stance of like, yeah, cut through some of the bullshit. Don't collude with the avoidance. Pay attention to where your instinct is to go with that rather yeah. than push against it. And it's so interesting to think about, you know, as we're talking about this, how much the good therapist is not the effective therapist. Right. Totally not. No. So I work with clients coaching wise. I work with clients using Voxer which is a parallel communication app. And it has dramatically improved my ability to mm -hmm. do my job and dramatically improved the outcomes that come with it. Mm. Uh, that is not factoring in where the client is. You know what I mean? Like yes, some yes, of that yes, has right. to play a role. Sure, sure. The reason it's so powerful for me is exactly what we're saying is because I can, they can ramble on for, you know, psychological landscape. 
And then I come back in with theme, 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 yes, theme. Yes. And so I can redirect them passively because they're not in front of me. Mm. They're listening to me in an audio. Mm-hmm. And so they don't feel that they need to be, you know, they, they can let it sit. Sometimes I can be a little like theme, theme, theme. We're talking about this theme, you know, and I know that they can be annoyed and then they can let it sit and then they can come back in when they're ready to keep it going. And in session, I struggle with that to annoy them because I'm like, oh, they won't come back or this is terrible or, you know. Oh, I love that. I think an effective therapist is annoying. I think that's true. I think that's true. A good therapist is not annoying. An effective therapist is really annoying because they're holding your feet to the fire of the shit that you came there to work on. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's really interesting about the recording because I now do um, quite a bit of written work with clients where I have them mm-hmm. write stuff and it's not worksheets. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> actually they're doing the writing um, with some narrative therapy stuff. Um, and I find actually that also makes it easier to stick to my guns around like, okay, in this you know, imagine dialogue that you've written, for example, like, here are the things that I'm seeing repeatedly, you know, and then they're, you know, wandering the landscape as they do. And then I can be like, okay, but here written down right here, Mm -hmm. I see this, you know, and so that that can really help to have that um, something other than just our the immediacy and our back and forth in that moment. So I have this idea of the a therapist can't say that moment, which is when you find yourself saying something as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you know, it doesn't fit with that idea of the good therapist, whether that's because you got that feedback or in yourself, you felt that clash of like, oh, a good quote unquote good therapist wouldn't say that. So if you have a therapist can't say that moment, I would love to hear it. This was a client who I'm regularly seeing, like therapist client, not on Voxer. So mm-hmm. I see her. She kept coming back to, but I feel this way, but I feel this way. Like she wasn't moving beyond, like she, she was trying to make a life decision and she was like, but I feel bad about it. Like, I feel like I'm going to disappoint people. Mm-hmm. And I <laughs> said, who cares how you, that you feel that way? Mm-hmm. You need to move past this. Mm-hmm. Like we can't just be stuck in that you feel this way, like honor that and move forward. Mm-hmm. And her, and I said it kind of like that. Cause she had gone on and on and on and on and on about, she kept coming back yes. to, but I feel, you yes. know, okay, we get it. Mm-hmm. That can't be controlling your life, you know? Right. And so her face went like, I can't believe you just said that to me. Like uh-huh. she, you know, <laughs> and I was like, regroup, regroup, regroup. And, and I said, no, it's important to honor your feelings. Like I had to, pull it back because I I jarred her. Yes. But I jarred her in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. You know, I like it's important to acknowledge your feelings, but you can't just get stuck there. You have to move past that and we gotta figure out a way to do that. And so I think by saying we gotta figure out a way to do that was better than fucking move on. What is your problem? <laughs> you know? Which is yes. borderline what I kind of said to her. And I'm a hundred percent sure Every therapist who has worked with any length of time for clients at some point has thought, 
can we fucking move on from this? Right. You know, with the thing that their person is bringing back over and over, you know, I'm sure I have been that client that a therapist has been sitting and thinking that about at some point. Um, I, I love that. Well, and I, I think like, honestly, you know, some of the moments that have the most movement in, in the therapeutic relationship are the moments where we get fed up and say something jarring, whether that's the wrong thing or the, Mm -hmm quote unquote wrong thing or how you know whether the client takes it well or doesn't take it well sometimes like that can really start the wheels turning because she did come back the next session and and she started doing it and she's like oh there i go again there you go and i was like yes (laughs) exactly (laughs) and i think that that brings us back to an effective therapist is annoying (laughs) yes 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 yeah i really appreciate you being here, I feel like this is a very generative um, conversation for me in, in thinking about unpacking some of this because I think it's so, I think it's actually very crucial um, for our field to progress if we really want to be doing effective therapy versus mm-hmm. being an unassailable, you know, good therapist who's beyond criticism. If we're really talking yeah. about effective therapy, I think that we, we need to tease this stuff apart because um, it's all muddled up as it is now. And, um, and I think it, it holds us back from, you know, just moving the field to probably where most of us ultimately would like it to be, which is actually really helping people. Yeah, no, I think what you are doing in having these conversations is so needed. Oh, you know, thank you. Yeah, really you. Uh, important. It's really important work what you're doing. Thank you. Um, yeah, I hope so. (laughs) I hope I'm not just shouting into the void, but it feels very important to me. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. You can find Nancy, her practice, and her program, The Self-Loyalty School, at nancyjanesmith.com. Okay, listeners, by now you know the drill because you've been listening to podcasts a long time that I'm going to ask you to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever your preferred medium is for listening to podcasts. Make sure to tune in for our next episode where I'm going to be getting deeper into some of the ideas Nancy and I talked about and how they've been coming up in very significant and unexpected ways as we've been doing therapy through the pandemic. You can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. If this episode brought something up for you that you'd like to share with me, I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to shoot me an email or send me a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time.